As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. All right. What's going on, guys? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda, Danny Abdeljabar here. Uh, Danny, how's it going? Chilling as per usual. I just got back uh, from Six Flags yesterday. I know that you went down to Bush Gardens, so I decided to go to a coaster park myself. It's pretty fun. Uh, yeah. What was your favorite coaster, Danny? Uh, it's got to be a toss-up. It's um, El Toro is crazy. Uh, it's a wooden coaster. It's giant, and it's it hauls ass, man. Um and I would say Superman because it like you know you're in a flying position and then when you go upside down it like you're like laying on your back and I like the G forces like it's like you're laying down it's kind of cool. Is that the one that uh, that uh, plants you upwards like you're about to get railed up the butt? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it, it puts you in the position. <laughs> I'm sure that's your favorite one. Yes. <laughs> See, I like Six Flags roller coaster. I th- roller coasters. I like their roller coasters. Uh, their best one is Nitro. I feel. Yeah, I love Nitro too, but that's a classic for sure. Six Flags has the only roller coaster that gets me sick. Which one? Medusa. Med- they don't have that anymore. They don't have that? No, I was just there. They don't have that anymore. Really? Yeah. It's probably getting too many people sick. Right. <laughs> it's not that it's scary. It just literally just made me feel like nauseous. I was I was in like NASA space training <laughs> as like an a- like astronaut training. I love that shit, dude. More I mean, I like I like the big drops, but I don't. I like any roller coaster, but sometimes it's just too much with the flippity doos and the loopity doos, or just my head rocking back, and I feel like I'm gonna get an ulcer. I have this one new ride from um, it's Cyborg, and it's off the DC character Cyborg, and it's just like it spins you, but then it also like rotates in like three different axes, and it's just like you're spinning, you're flipping, and you're turning at the same time. It's fucking crazy. Sounds fun. Who'd you go with? The GF? Yep. It was fun. Nice, 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 brother. Um, so, I'm kind of pissed off. Why? Because the other day, I signed up for like one of those dollar subscriptions for Wall Street Journal. You know how like when you're reading an article, you're like, And they give oh. you three free for a month, and then you're yeah. like, God damn it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So... You you sign up. You're like, okay, it's a dollar. I'm gonna. I really need to read this article for like what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So I'll read it, and then all of a sudden, I'll, I'll I'll totally forget. It's nine out of ten times I forget, and I just got billed from the fucking Wall Street Journal. That's how they get you. Fake news, Wall Street Journal, huh? <laughs> Jeff Bezos taking your money right fucking now. Je- fucking Jeff Bezos. He doesn't own <laughs> Wall Street Journal. He owns Washington Post. Oh my bad. Same shit. <laughs> But the same thing happened to me with Haretz. But I actually Are, read you did Haretz. it for Haretz, too? <laughs> yeah, the, same thing happened, the exact same thing happened to me with Haretz and uh, foreignpolicy.com. So this is the third time this has happened to me. So as... as uh, Google gave me the times for, for free for a year. Really? Um, yeah. I'm sure they'll charge me next year, but 
They gave it to me for free for a year, which I thought was cool. As George Bush said, old, old Texas proverb, you fool me once, uh, shame on uh, shame, shame on you. Fool me twice, you can't fool me again. He got it wrong. That's the joke <laughs> of it, though. But, um, guys, uh, today we're actually going to be talking about Sykes-Pico. Oh. And the reason why, I know, smooth transition. Some right? highbrow shit. Uh, the reason why we're talking about Sykes-Pico is because a lot of people don't really know that much about it. I mean, I don't know that much about it. <laughs> yeah, it's not, and it's not people's fault. It's something that's literally ignored in history mm-hmm. class. Like, were you ever taught? Were you ever really taught about World War One in general, besides like the basics? What I was taught about World War One was that it was the lead up to World War Two, and then we learned a lot about World War Two. <laughs> exactly. That's that's basically World War One in a nutshell. Uh, World War One in school is basically um, trench gas masks and. Uh, maybe you'll talk about the famous book, um, All Quiet on the Western Front. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty much it. You don't really learn too much about World War One. You don't really learn too much about the early 20th century in general. You, you kind of just skip. In American history class, you go from the Revolutionary War, uh, then you like go right to the Civil War. Maybe you'll hit the War of 1812 and th- things like Rarely. that. Rarely. I feel like I only got that one in college, honestly. I I got the War of eighteen twelve. Um, we got you know the Louisiana Purchase and Manifest Destiny, and mm-hmm. you know you get the Civil War, and then from there you go to Reconstruction to like the Progressive Era, and then you kind of just skate by World War One, which I don't really know why they skate by it. It's such an important piece of history that's just so misunderstood and so ignored. And I think the main reason why it skipped, and at least in American history classes, is because the United States was only in the war for about a year or so. Right. Um, and then you learn, like, basic stuff like, oh, uh, you know, unrestricted uh, submarine warfare, the Zimmerman telegram, um, and then you don't really learn anything about the battles that America was in. You don't really learn really anything except the end of the war. And you learn about, like, you know, the 14 points and the League of Nations, and then you skip the World War II. Like, there's right. the period between World War One and World War II is just skipped. Nothing happened. You, you talk about the Great Depression, and then you're yeah. like, then we got out of it because we killed some Nazis. Yeah. Uh, and that's U.S. history class in a nutshell. So you have an entire piece of history that's really uh, unexplored for most Americans. I, I'm sure that in British textbooks and Australian textbooks it's it's a lot is covered a lot more just because the the loss of life was so much higher in Britain and France and Australia and Germany and you know all the other major participants of the war the casualty rates were so high but i mean the US 100,000 men died so it's not like right. it it's was not a small amount of people the biggest battle or one of the top 3 battles in american history was in world war 1 the battles of the argonne forest so it's still kind of perplexing that you're still not you're not talking about it. Like the casualty rate was right up there with World War II casualties, considering the time that the U.S. was in the war. But we're not even talking about that. We're, we're just talking about the general lack of context in World War One and why it's just kind of silly. But we wanted to talk about Sykes-Picot because not that many people know what it is. I'm sure a lot of people are listening and are like, what, what's Sykes-Picot? So... Um, during World War One, they called it a world war for a reason, because it was fought all over the world, believe it or not. So what is Sykes-Picot? So in um, Sykes-Picot is basically 
it's not how the Middle East, the modern Middle East was formed, but it's um, it, it tells a big part of the story. So in 1915, during World War I, Britain and France try to make a secret deal to resolve tensions in the Middle East due to their imperial ambitions. Um, this secret deal is called the Sykes-Picot Agreement. In the deal, they split the Ottoman Empire's Middle Eastern territories between themselves. So remember, the Ottoman Empire um, was once very, very large. It gradually declined. And by World War I, the only assets they really had were in the Middle East and in Turkey. Um, the British and the French did this. They did this by drawing a diagonal line on a map that ran from the Mediterranean Sea to the mountains in Persia. So literally, um, the two guys negotiating the deal, why it's called Sykes-Picot, is Mark Sykes and um, Picot, the French dude. Picot. Um, Picot. They literally uh, drew a—Mark Sykes literally took a crayon, fist in his hand, and just colored it, and <laughs> probably drunk, uh, and just drew a diagonal line. Straight across. From straight across. Like, just literally just type in Sykes-Picot. You'll see the diagonal line. It's from the, the, the Mediterranean Sea right up to Persia. So the territory north of this line would go to France. So modern-day Syria, Lebanon, and northern Iraq. Uh, most of the land south would go to the British Empire. So the rest of Iraq, Transjordan, uh, which is Jordan, um, give it Transjordan, uh, Kuwait, and what's now the northeastern coast of Saudi Arabia. Um, and no one could really agree over Palestine. So it well, was actually never put, really change, huh? <laughs> yeah, no one could no one could really agree. No one could really agree over Palestine because, you know, everyone really thought they had a claim over it, especially the French. Um, they said, you know, there was a lot of Frankish blood that was spilled during the Crusades. For the British, the same thing. There was a lot of, you know, Anglo blood that was spilled during the Crusades. So everyone thought they had some type of claim to Palestine. Yeah, so no one can agree over Palestine. It was put under international administration. And at this time, empire building was pretty common. But by the 19th century, by the 20th century, it was becoming more and more taboo. Like after you rape Africa for, you know, a good 30 years or so, it starts to become it starts to become it starts to become a little taboo. So what the British did is to mask their imperial ambitions, the British started supporting Zionism. They started publicly supporting the Zionist movement to make Palestine a Jewish state. They did this in order to secure the eastern flank of the Suez Canal while also dodging the accusation of, of empire building, which what they were essentially doing. Suez Canal uh, being a major shipping lane, of course. They were trying to protect the imperial ambitions or claim to Egypt. Because everything really, it's like looking at the British Empire and the history, everything, it, it sounds like everything that they do is, is, is for their claim to India. It's for their claim to Egypt. Uh, but yeah, they, they wanted to have a friendly government in place in, in uh, Palestine to protect Egypt which was like a major, major uh, breadbasket and important strategic part of the British Empire. Right. So they thought, well, this ended up completely backfiring, of course. They thought the Arabs would be mad, but they would eventually recognize the economic advantage of Jewish immigration because we all know Jewish people tend to do, tend to do pretty well. Saying this is a positive... Um, and the Arabs were furious. Um, this resulted in the British limiting Jewish immigration to Palestine, which really pissed off the Zionists now. Right, now so they're now pissing have, off two people. 
So now you have two angry parties, the Arabs. The Arabs and the Zionists are both mad at the British. So another part of this is that under the League of Nations, both Britain and France were supposed to direct all these new countries that they were basically either set up puppet governments of or countries. They were supposed to direct these countries to independence. Um, But they really dragged their feet throughout the entire process. And at the end of the day, this resulted in revolt and terrorism from both the Arabs and the Zionists who were in that area. So that's kind of like what Sykes-Picot is and what it led up to. But I think, honestly, the most important thing to do is not necessarily go through actual it's the Sykes-Picot agreement itself. Um, because it's, it's, it's frankly, it's kind of boring. You know, it's basically a bunch of people just arguing over land. Right. Which is not always boring, but I feel like it's way more important to understand, like, the total context and what actually led up to Sykes-Picot. Like, why were – why was the Middle East important? How did we end up here? Like, how did we end up at this point? Because that play, that goes largely ignored. Like, most people who know about early modern Middle East history and all of that, it really just kind of starts with, like, oh, the British and the French got greedy and they started splitting up land and all that shit. And, and it, it, there's there's no, like, subtlety. There's not subtlety, but there's no... Nuance. Nuance in there. There's no substance in there. Like, why were they... Like, why did this happen, I, right. I, I feel... And it's really good backdrop for a lot of the stuff that we talk about. I mean, we, we focus on on a lot of geopolitics and, you know, specifically around the Middle East just because it happens to be very relevant today and important. And I think it's good for, you know, everyone out there that's listening and, and, and or watching today to kind of get a bro history lesson on, like, how did this all happen? So there's something seriously wrong with Iraq and Syria. I don't mean like there's something wrong with Iraqis and Syrians. I'm saying there's something wrong with the actual names of the countries. Mm. Um, I mean, the countries are the names of the countries are, are an absolute enigma in itself. Like, of course, the name Syria is connected to Assyria, which right. was an empire in the Med- in the in the Middle East for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, and biblical. then yeah. it was a bib- it was biblical meaning. And the Greeks and the Romans used to refer to pretty much all areas um, east of the Mediterranean as Syria. You hear of something called the Greater Syria Project, which is basically like the Levant. So the Greeks and the Romans actually used to refer to that whole region as Syria, mm-hmm. which in Syria, by it, it, when translated, it just comes at, it just means the region. Um, however, the British forgot to write down how they came up with the name Iraq. Like, we don't really know where the name Iraq comes from. That's interesting. It is interesting. The popular theory among historians is that Iraq is based on uh, Uruk, which is an ancient Mesopotamian city-state. It's also the word for uh, riverbank. But, like, no one really knows where Iraq came from. Like, it's not confirmed. I'm sure some assholes listening is like, oh, I know for a fact it's... (laughs) But... I the don't Uruk think anyone thing is, really is pretty interesting, though. It, it probably is, but I, I don't think there is a source of how they actually came up with the name Iraq. It's all spot speculation. Maybe. So <laughs> there's some Brit who's like, hey, mate, what are they going to call this land of sand? Why don't they, Menji? Why don't we call it Eric? <laughs> like, hey, Eric, you forgot your porridge. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> That's how I kind of imagine how Iraq the name. All oh, these fucking cunts. Oh. Uruk is a fucking cunt. What did you say? Uruk? Iraq? Iraq? Sounds like a perfect name. Something along the lines of drunk Brits. 
in a tent and following up lines. <laughs> well, the British were the ones who named it. They were the ones who had the administrative control over that area, which is now modern-day Iraq. The French took Syria, but we'll get into that later. So I think to understand, like, we're going to have to go back even further now. We're gonna, Let's go back in our time machines. Let's go back 1,400 years. We're going to get our time crystals. Good. Alex Jones is going to give us our time crystals, and then we're going to fly back. <laughs> uh, we're going to... Soros, we're going to have to strangle him as a baby. Uh, <laughs> the globalist threat. Um, no, really, to understand the root of the problem, you have to have a basic understanding of Middle Eastern history over the past 1,400 years. Oh, that sounds riveting. <laughs> no, but it's not. It's not. I'm going to just, I'm going to fly through this. So right, it's not right, boring. Let's, let's try it. Let's try it. All right. So I'm going to try to make this as concise as possible, and I'm going to miss a ton. So, <laughs> you know, leave your complaints at our P.O. box. It doesn't exist. <laughs> uh, so the Arabs, the Arabs started building an empire in 633 AD, and by 750 AD, that empire it stretched from Spain to Pakistan. Yeah. Um, despite what many critics say of Islam, the Arabs were not genocidal maniacs like the Mongols or the Spanish. They actually showed an incredible amount of tolerance to native religious practices. That's right. In fact, believe it or not. When the Arabs were first going under their, when they were first conquering Africa, they preferred not to convert their subjects to Islam. They preferred to tax them instead. So they were socialists. <laughs> they were just imperialists who were taxing the native population. So yeah. it wasn't like they were totally the good guys. But they enforced something called a jizya, which is a which is a tax on non-Muslims. Um, but no, like. There's been violent, more violent times and other times in Arab, in Arab history, but the Arab well, what conquest. What was it called again? A, a what? A jizya. A jizya. Jizya. I barely know you. J J I Z Y A. <laughs> you didn't catch that. It's called <laughs> J I Z Y A. It's a jizya. It's a tax on non-Muslims. So what ended up happening is that when they were conquering northern Africa, when they were stretching from, you know. Uh, Essentially, they were stretching from Jerusalem or Damascus all the way down to, uh, you know, the Morocco, Morocco, and all those countries. Um, they preferred the tax. They preferred to tax them, which makes sense. And by 750 AD, when the Abbasid Caliphate took over, Islam was only the third largest religion in the empire. But um, it was during the Abbasid rule when the empire started really the the Arabize. Mm -hmm. And when I when you say the word Arabize. I mean adopting the Arabic language and all the customs that go along with that. Right. I don't mean I hate the the, the modern day like conversations about like race and stuff mm -hmm. because they like lack so much context that people ancient peoples constantly invaded each other. So you're a mix of everything, really, when you think about it. Like, if you happen to be in one of those countries, they got invaded a lot, right? <laughs> yeah, you don't know where the hell you're from. Like, right. I, I, that's why I hate when people take like pride in their race. I think it's such a stupid thing to take pride in because you don't know, you goddamn don't know where you're where you're from. You know how many people were raided and raped and conquered throughout the entire world history. Usually, when you say somebody's a certain like you know, Arab or something or Turkish or whatever. You're meaning that they're they speak that, like linguistically they're that. 
Culturally, so, they're that. Culturally, because if you look at people in the Middle East who are Arab, you'll see black Arabs. You'll see right. super brown Arabs. You'll see white Arabs. That's you'll right. see you'll Asian see, Arabs. Right. It, you'll see very a very different makeup of people who consider themselves Arab. Like I believe the Sudan is considered a, an Arabic country. It is. Like yeah. it's it's predominantly like, they're, Muslim they're, there. They're in the League of Arab. They're in the League of Arab uh, Nations. Sudan is they're they're Afri- They're black African. Like you wouldn't think of them as a stereotypical Arab. So Arabize meaning that they started adopting Arabic customs and languages and things like that. Right. Um, to make a very long story short, the Arab Empire doesn't last very long. The, the, the Persians end up taking, start, start taking out pieces. The Turks start carving up pieces. And the rest of the empire ultimately breaks up into small states ran by warlords. And it was during this time the Arabs went through three apocalyptic events. And we've talked about this on other podcasts. Yeah. Um, so you have to understand a lot of the reason why the Arab world, I don't want to say behind, but yeah, we can say behind. There are some setbacks that they hit that were pretty hardcore. Uh, one was the Crusades, which millions of people died. Millions of brutal war, millions of people died. Two was a Mongol invasion, invasion, invasion. the Mongol invasion, <laughs> uh, the Mongol invasion, which, I mean, Baghdad at that time was the uh, scientific capital of the world. And it got sacked. And it got sacked. That's right. It got completely sacked. And not just sacked. I mean, like sacked Game of Thrones, worst episode of Game of Thrones, Red Wedding sacked, like. Anyone who's taller than like Daenerys Stormborn taking King's Landing back sacked. Exactly, that's a that's a perfect analogy. Like anyone, you know how the Mongols used to do is that they used to anyone who was taller than like the, a wheelbarrow or a wheel, uh, they would have their heads chopped off, and then they would assign a certain amount of people to chop off as many. So you'd have a head quota. So you'd be like, all right, everyone's got to chop off one hundred heads. If you have a thousand guys it's a lot of hundred thousand hate to be a part of that daily morning stand-up yeah. <laughs> where are you to quota <laughs> i'm only 37 heads and i only have a week left <laughs> we're gonna have to put you on a head pip <laughs> so other people in your in your class have been um they've been hitting their quota they've been chopping off 100 heads a day you've only been hitting 70 a day for a week now maybe you should shadow them (laughs) (laughs) maybe you should shadow them and see what they're doing right we're just trying to help you we're not firing you we're 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 just giving you encouragement (laughs) fear-based encouragement (laughs) yeah fear-based encouragement we'll just we'll just leave you here forever and we'll kill you and rape your wife. Um, <laughs> All right, so that was the second one, right? So we had the Crusades, we had the Mongol invasion, right? What was the third one? Then the bubonic plague, of course. Right, right. And, well, uh, everybody bubonic, got hit by the bubonic plague. <laughs> yeah, but the bubonic plague especially hit the Muslim world really hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, millions of people died, regions spiraled into chaos, and uh, it wasn't really until the Ottoman Empire swooped in that the Middle East saw any type of stability, and before I segue into the Ottoman Empire, like something that's super interesting is that the British and the, the, the Americans, 
their first interest in the Middle East had way more to do with piracy. Because when a country falls, like when a society collapses, people resort to, I mean, now people resort to selling drugs and prostitution and stuff like that and joining militias. Um, and in the case of like Western Af- uh, Eastern Africa, pirates, like Somalian pirates. But I mean, that was the same back then. People would would become pirates. So the Middle East was a haven for pirates. So um, what's super interesting is that you ever hear the story of uh, Thomas Jefferson and the Barbary pirates? No, <laughs> you never heard please about that. Me. No, please tell me. This is this is gonna this is a little bit of sidetrack, but it's a super interesting story. So the Middle East was infested with pirates uh, at the birth of our country during the time of, of uh, U.S. independence. Um, basically, what they would do is that they would hold ships hostage, and if you paid them a tax or if you bribed them, they would let you go. The U.S. said, we're not going to pay that. We're not going to pay that. We're not doing that. Screw you. So the U.S. sent their fleet at this time. There's like four ships, four or five ships, their fleet to the Middle East. And they hired a mercenary army of like Greeks and, and you know, native barbers. And um, they ended up defeating uh, a large part of those pirates. And um, they that marine, you know, that marine saber. Yeah. The scimitar. Yeah, that was actually a gift from some local emir or something like that. That so that that was a middle that's that's from the Arab world or northern Africa. I've always so. wondered about that because that doesn't look like the like a blade that like the English would have brought over. Or no, like that's the French. That's, that's an that's a blade that's from northern Africa. That's cool. The more you know, scimitars. Dope. The more you know. So all right. I'm getting too sidetracked here. So the Ottomans, the Ottomans, they conquered a territory comparable to the size of the Roman Empire. In fact, what they created was a Sultanate of Rome. The stated goal of the Ottoman Empire was to create a Muslim Roman Empire, which is interesting, right? So their their territories basically it's Rome minus Europe plus Rome minus all the Jesus. Middle East, yeah. Rome minus Jesus. Well, Rome well, didn't actually, get Jesus no, that, till later. That's not until like late Rome. Uh, yeah. Rome minus the Pantheon. But this is really important to understand for the greater context of Sykes-Picot and World War One. So the problem with the Ottomans is that they weren't Arabs. They were Turkish. Right. So you have a situation in the Middle East and Northern Africa where the majority of Arabs became the subjects to the minority Turks. When the Ottomans started to decline, European powers started to realize that this is something that they could exploit in order to divvy up the Ottoman Empire. Right. And we're hey, going to those guys get, aren't like you. You should do something about exactly. it. Exactly. And it's going to make sense as we get into World War One stuff. Yeah. But they realized that there was that the Arab Turk split existed. Mm-hmm. It's because the minority ethnic group ruled over the majority one, mm-hmm. at least in the Middle East. So. What's really interesting is that for most of the 19th century, it was British policy to support the Ottomans as a bulwark against the Russian Empire. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this was the time of the Great Game when Britain's primary imperial rival were the Russians. Um, Basically, the Great Game is like the imperial chess game between Britain and Russia over like Afghanistan and Central Asia. 
basically Russia was expanding and Britain was like freaked out because whenever somebody approaches India, India is like if you look at like English history, India is like their ball sack. Like whenever someone comes close to their ball sack, they like no, 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 no. You gotta get get away. Go Curl away. up Go into away. a ball, get into a defensive posture. Yeah, they get into a defensive posture. So it's like a one hundred year long uh, system of of just like espionage and spies and people intelligence operations against the two countries and deals and all this crazy stuff. So that was a history between Russia and Britain for a long time, and it was British policy to make sure the Ottoman Empire would be there. So in the case of Russia expanded over into like Constantinople or into Turkey, that they wouldn't be able to do that because that would be very bad news for British policy at the time. Um, in 1853, a world war breaks out. Oh, um, uh, I don't think that World War One started that early. No. Um, so I don't understand why there's only two world wars. There's only World I mean, War One and World enough. War Two. <laughs> no, but I don't understand how people only define world wars as World War One and World War Two. Okay. The Crimean enough. War, the Crimean War, the one, the one versus Ukraine versus Russia, like a couple of years ago. No, the war, <laughs> the, the war between was definitely a world war. It was a war between the British, French, and the Ottoman empires against the Russian empire. Mm-hmm. And basically, fighting took place all over the world. Fighting took place between over the Balkans to the Baltic Sea to Asia. Mm-hmm. Millions of people died. It was absolutely a world war, in my opinion. Like, it was just... Sounds a, like it. It was, a, it was the most brutal war in the 19th century besides maybe the Civil War. It, at least European war. It was a, right. it was a, but at it least was a terrible the, the Civil war. war was in one country. Or two, yeah. if you really want to be technical about it. <laughs> um, yeah, like fighting took place in Asia. Fighting took place in, in uh, the Baltic Sea. Fighting, most of the fighting took place in, in uh, the Balkans area. But I don't want to like start just renaming wars, but I think it could be considered a world war. I mean, that's like calling Pluto a planet again, you know, like at this point. That's a good point. Touche. So... Nevertheless, in the 19th century, the Ottoman Empire started slacking big time. Um, They started falling technologically behind European powers, and the Ottomans started falling in a massive amount of debt. Um, One, due to the Crimean War, um, if I'm pronouncing that, you know, save your comments to our Crimean. Save your comments to our PO box because I I mispronounce everything. You can fax us. You can you can fax us. You can uh, text me at uh, 555-555-555-555. Yeah. 558432. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can spend less time staying in the know about all things gaming and get more time to actually play the games you love with the IGN Daily Update Podcast. All you need is a few minutes to hear the latest from IGN on the world of video games, movies, and television with news, previews, and reviews. You'll hear everything from Comic-Con coverage to the huge Diablo 4 launch. So listen and subscribe to the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. That's the IGN Daily Update wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but yeah, due to, due to the war, they all they were in massive debt. And they also invested in these really, really stupid infrastructure projects. So if you're like, if you're buying a computer right now, or if you're on your phone, most likely, like just type in like this stupid Ottoman and Egyptian infrastructure, like the Egyptian opera house was like a big one because Egypt was a vassal state of the Ottoman Empire at the time. But it's like all these luxury, like super luxurious, like palaces and stuff like that. They were stunting. They were stunting. You know what they mean? You know, you got to you got to get money for your subjects when things aren't going well. You know how to make yourself look good. You buy a palace, right? Yeah. When things are in the gutter, when things are in the gutter, the number one thing to make it look like you're not in the gutter is you buy a fucking palace. Right. It's like, look at my palace, bitch. Look at my palace, bitch. Do I look like I'm in debt? I'm balling right now, <laughs> bitch. You know, yeah, paper, paper houses. I mean, shit. It's paper houses. You know, that's it's, uh, you know, some people are really overcompensating for yeah, something, seriously. right? <laughs> you know, like some people really are overcompensating. If only these guys had something to increase their performance, you know, like something affordable, mm-hmm. something chewable, something blue. Ooh. Ooh. Guys, let's just take a quick moment to talk about sex. Good sex. So unlike in the 19th century, now you can increase your performance and get that extra confidence in bed. Listen up. BlueChew.com. That's blue like the color blue. BlueChew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA-approved active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis. So you know they work well. You can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. Whew. So you can, uh, you can be ready whenever you want. When the opportunity arises, my brother. And ladies, you can get them for your man as well. Um, I have to tell you something really funny. So... Did I ever tell you the funny the story about when I got prescri- I asked my doctor for a prescription of uh, Cialis. I was like, I made it. I was like, hey, uh, you know, I'm having trouble down there, and they gave me a, he gave me a subscription. So I went over to the pharmacy, and I'm in line. It's like a super attractive pharmacist, so I'm just like mortified. I'm mortified. There's like a super attractive girl behind me too. At the same and you're in time, like it's in like 20s and shit. You know, I'm, and it's like, I'm like uh, 25 years old. I'm like shit. This I'm so embarrassed. And then my insurance doesn't even end up paying for it. So I'm just like out of pocket. No, like I didn't get thing. it. I was just like, oh, <laughs> never mind. Joke, joke, joke. It's not joke, even joke. me. It's not even mine. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, but with yeah, with with Blue Chew, you can avoid all this. If you could benefit from extra function and more confidence where it counts, Blue Chew is the fast and easy way to enhance your performance. Uh, most guys talk a good game, but Blue Chew helps you follow through. Uh, Blue Chew is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. Yeah. So no in-person doctor visits, no waiting in the pharmacy, and best of all, no more awkwardness. And believe me, telling your doctor you need Viagra 
is more awkward than having them touch your balls. And they will touch your balls. <laughs> yeah, it's more <laughs> awkward. Yeah. Um, they're made in the USA, and since Blue Chew prepares and ships direct, they're cheaper than a pharmacy. Right now, we got a special deal for our listeners. Visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment free when you use our special promo code, BRO. That's B R O. Just pay $5 shipping. Again, that's B-L-U-E-Chew.com, promo code BRO to try it free. Blue Chew is the better, cheaper, faster choice, and we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you, Blue Chew. Thank you, Blue Chew. Making people happy. That's, that's the type of people that we want to work with. Definitely. So back to the Ottomans, those Ottomans who uh, couldn't get it up, so they had to spin on lavish pop palaces. That's right. That's what happens. If only Blue Chew was around back in the, the 19th century, we would have none of the problems in the Middle East. I know, right? Um, they wouldn't have needed to buy all of those palaces. They wouldn't have needed. So, all right, let's go to the fall of the Ottoman Empire. So by 1876, the Ottoman government, they go, they go completely bankrupt. They go completely bankrupt. And the British policy prior to that was to support them. They were, it was a bulwark against the Russian Empire. Right. But different things are going on at this time. So we got to remember the Germans are now a country. The Germans? Oh, the, the Germans are now a country. That's scary, right? Who gave yeah. those guys a country? <laughs> they gave it to themselves. <laughs> that was a bad idea, as we see throughout history. So the oh. Germans get a country. Um, so Russia's not like the big imperial rival that they used to be. Now it's Germany. Um, and then, so the British decided to really abandon their 50-year-old policy of supporting the Ottoman Empire. And they owed, the British were buying so much, they're investing so much in Ottoman treasury and Egyptian treasury because Egypt was an Ottoman asset at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, not only did the British stop financing the Ottomans, but they started to seize their assets from the government and their vassal states. Mm. So first they seized Cyprus, which is that little turdy-looking island in the coast, off the coast of Turkey and Syria. Oh, it's a nice country. <laughs> It's, it's kind a nice of island. It's a little. It's a, I'm sure it's beautiful, but if you look on a Mercator projection map, it kind of looks like a turd. <laughs> okay. So they take that turdy-looking island, Cyprus, and then they seize the real important asset, the Suez Canal, in 1882. Mm-hmm. That's what they wanted in the first place. Anyway. That's what they wanted. So the Suez Canal. It's it's a extremely, extremely, extremely important waterway. To this day, it's the most strategic waterway in the world. So. They seized the Suez Canal in 1882, and by World War I, the Ottomans were referred to as the sick man of Europe. And I'm pretty sure anyone who like knows even a little bit about World War I has probably heard that term. You know, they lost the vast majority of their, their, of their territory, uh, really with the exception, the only territory they had left at this time, like going into World War I, was uh, the western coast of what is now... Um, or the, the uh, eastern coast of what is now Saudi Arabia, the Levant, uh, Turkey, uh, just the Middle Eastern areas and like some of the coastal areas of Saudi Arabia. So at the same time when the Ottoman Empire is going down the gutter, this is the climax <laughs> of like European imperialism. All right? Climax. <laughs> the cli- Blue Chew. Uh, this is the climax of European imperialism. So the scramble of Africa. When are you going to talk about Sykes Pico? I know, I'm right? Getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm trying to lead up to the event. That's that's what I'm trying to do. All right, so, tell me about Africa. So the scramble of Africa. You've probably heard of it. It's when all the 
it, it starts off with Belgium taking Congo. That's right. And they're like, oh, look what this little small shit country can do. They can just take a country in the middle of Africa that has a way bigger population. Let's all do it. And everyone just starts taking a bunch of countries in Africa. And it, from, in like a 30-year period, I think it went from like 10% European control to 95% European control. Mm-hmm. I forget the exact statistic, but it's something insane like that. It was that. pretty because rapid, yeah. Africa was taken over by the European imperial countries in a matter of about three decades, all of it. Like every, like almost every speck of land was taken over. So, um, late 19th century, uh, there was a imperial standoff between the French and the British empire and the sudan and um to make a long story short and this is really important for the context of world war one like this is pay attention to this part it's called the fashada the fashada all right so the fashada incident is 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 a, a key thing that you have to know so it's an imperial standoff between the british and the french empire it's in sudan what happens to make a long story short it comes to a peaceful resolution. It wasn't actually like a military conflict. It was more of like a political conflict between the two foreign policy establishments of each country. They were arguing over different claims in Africa. And what comes of it is that Britain, it's, France recognizes Britain's right to Egypt. Claim to Egypt. Right. Recognize That's- all claim to Egypt. <laughs> you recognize all claim to Mor- Mor- Morocco. Like that was basically it. So... France recognizes England's claim to, to Egypt, and then uh, England recognizes France's claim to Morocco. But here's the thing. Who the fuck cares about Morocco, right? Like, Morocco's not really that important, right? In the <laughs> like, 18th century? Oh, 19th century? Yeah, come on. I don't know. There's a lot of spices and stuff there. Who it's a pretty you, cool who, country. What, they got what's more, import- what's more important, Egypt or Morocco? I mean, geopolitically, probably Egypt because the Suez Canal. But yeah. Yeah. Forever, it's always been. But you gotta more be important. specific because you know Morocco's a cool country. I'm not saying which country is cooler. <laughs> I'm saying which important is what country. If you're playing Monopoly, what would you rather land on? Park or, or Boardwalk or the stupid purple one in the beginning? Purple one, whatever it is. <laughs> would you Would you rather land on Charizard or Caterpie? Because uh, the only. Yeah. Po- the only the only Monopoly I play is Pokemon Monopoly. So I didn't I know that there was a Pokemon Monopoly, and now I have to go get it. Yeah, I think uh, Charizard and maybe like Articuna or the Articuno, blue, Broadway and Boardwalk. Mm-hmm. But what what would you rather land on? You want to land on Boardwalk or Park Place for Charizard? For Charizard. So when this happens, it looks really bad. To the French, they're like, man, we just got we just got swindled again. <laughs> it's like, damn it, <laughs> those damn Brits—they swindled us again. Son of a bitch. <laughs> it was more like, oh, the bleu. So it was more of like that. So going into that context, this is when the the French start becoming very, very like suspicious of every single move. That's really made from the British Empire. I mean, as they should have. Brits were as, really sneaky then. As they should have, as is tra- as in tradition. So let's skip ahead. So, um, as I said before, the new imperial rival to everyone is Germany at this time, and and part of the reason why they made this tr- they made a truce 
um, was because they both recognized that Germany had a population of 80 million people. They took the characteristics of the Prussian military. Prussia had previously just wiped the floor with France in a war. Um, Prussia, I mean, the German army would have wiped the floor with, with Britain in a war. They recognized that we got to stick together. This, these Germans are going to, they would kick our ass without each other. So there's this new policy that arises where they support each other, but they're also secretly back. Like, they're frenemies. The frenemy policy is basically what happens. So they both become highly suspicious of each other from all their moves, but they had to, like, be really smooth about what their intentions were. Like, you know, like, they had to... It was like an internal diplomatic war under the scenes, even though that they were still allies. So World War One breaks out. Let's just skip right ahead. So when World War One breaks out, uh, there is a the, the the German the primary European influence in the Ottoman Empire at this time is Germany. Um, the Ottoman Empire does ally with Germany, and what they do is that they they declare a jihad on the British and French troops. So what this means is that. Um, you know, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire is a very influential figure in the Ottoman world at this time. So what this basically means is that the British need to be really careful about their Muslim subjects rising up against them, which is a big problem because they, I mean, the Britons have been, the Britain have been putting down revolts their entire life. You know, that's the British Empire. They, er, they, ergo they, India. <laughs> and they know how far, yeah. they know how far a, a Muslim revolt can go. They've dealt with them before. So they're like, fuck, uh, what do we do? All right. Well, what we could do is that we can invade. Like, we're fighting Germany right now in a brutal stalemate war on the Western Front. Um, it's really bad not going anywhere, and a lot of people are dying. So why don't we try doing this? Uh, we got to take out the Ottomans because they're pissing off all the Muslims in our territories. So let's invade uh, let's invade the Ottoman Empire. That sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. We'll take them out, and then we'll go straight up to uh, the, you know, we'll go through Turkey and then up to Europe, and then we'll win. We'll win the war. And that'll be it. We'll take out Austria, and then we'll, we'll, Germany will be completely screwed over. The Ottoman Empire is weak. We stopped, we, as we know, we just seized a bunch of their assets a couple of years ago. They can't do They're nothing. They're the sick man. They're the sick man of Europe. So, this is where the story gets kind of fucked up. And this is where that political grandstanding between the British and the French starts to really play a part. So what they originally wanted to do is that they wanted to take this port called in uh, Al- Alexandretta. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Alexandretta. So it's a port that is in the... So prior to this, let me... I'm getting too ahead of myself. So prior to this, Syria had already told... I'm not Syria. France had already told Britain prior to the war, that they were interested in Syria. Right, they're trying to get in on this game. And Britain said nothing. They were like, oh, yeah, sure, take it. Go, yeah, whatever. And uh, French were like, we have a claim to Syria! (laughs) Because there's a large, there's a really long history of Franks in Syria, and, you know, Damascus is basically a holy city and Mm -hmm. all that. And, you know, there's, there's like a... A union. There's a bunch of school French schools there and stuff. They're like, we 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 deserve it. We we deserve it. So the British say nothing. So they wanted to take when they wanted to invade 
um, the first they wanted to invade the Ottoman Empire. They wanted to take this part that was in uh, like the, I think right now the modern day border of Syria and the Ottoman and uh, Turkey and Alexandretta. And the French were like, don't fucking even try to do that. Like, we don't trust you for a second. Once you land there, you're going to claim that area. We've already said we wanted that area. Don't even try that. So the British are like, fine. We'll do it. We'll, we'll do something else. So they decide to invade. They decide to, to invade Gallipoli. So the Battle of Gallipoli in oh, World War One. Yeah. The Battle of Gallipoli in World War One was one of the most humiliating defeats in military history. The mm-hmm. British Empire, the British Australian, um, British Australian primarily troops were slaughtered on that beach. Just completely slaughtered. Very unpopular. Winston Churchill almost ruined his political career for it because he was one of the people who spearheaded it. So it ended up really, really, really bad. And it was due to a dumb, stupid political move. They should have taken a different, a different port in the first place. They should have t- they should have taken uh, the Alexandretta port, but they didn't because they didn't want to piss off the French. They didn't want to alienate them. And at this time, the French were taking on the brunt of the the war in the Western Front, so they couldn't piss them off too much. It, it just it was too close of an ally. So when that fails, they decide that they need to do something different. All right, what are we gonna do? We're in a stalemate. Over, we're, we're basically in two stalemates. We have a stalemate on the Western Front. We have a stalemate down in Turkey. Like, this is this is just terrible. Like, this is awful. I don't think this can get any worse. So, remember? Remember? So, back. If you go back, I said that. Way back. I said that the British realized that something that they could exploit in the Ottoman Empire was that the majority Turks, or minority Turks, ruled over the majority Arabs. Oh. So basically they... That's they, something that we can work with, right? Yep, they put right? together a that's bunch something. of bots, and, and then they time, infiltrated that, Twitter, and then they started yeah, putting they out put a bunch a, of fake news to exactly. divide the people. So they're like, okay, this is something that we can work with. We can work with this. We can, uh, we can uh, get these uh, Arabs riled up. <laughs> Cause some mischief. So what they do is that they tell – so here, here's one thing you need to do. It's, like a, it's, a, it's a brilliant plan. And the British are also interested in the Middle East because they had just recently discovered oil in Iran. And they're just making a shitload of money. And they figured, they figured, they figured that there was going to be a lot of oil other places in the Middle East. So they really wanted some certain areas. But besides that, this is just the strategic battle stuff. So they go to the Arabs. They go to the Sharif of Mecca. They go to, to uh, Sharif Hussein. And they're like, hey, buddy. We're fighting these fucking turkey bastards. Um, how about your own state? How do you like that? You get your own Arab state. Get your own palace, too. You can get your own, all your own. And the Sharif of Mecca was like, yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'll just wait till this. I'll just, I'll just wait till this motorcycle goes. All right. So the Arabs. So Sharif Hussein was like, "Yeah, buddy, tell me more about this Arab state. I'll, I'm definitely down for this." So they tell them, like, "Hey, listen, you cause you you start a revolt. You can have your Arab independence. Get we'll get to Turkey. It'll be gone." 
and um, you'll have your own Arab state. You know, you'll have Damascus. You'll have this big area. It's all carved out for you for for helping us defeat the Ottoman Empire. So they revolt, and um, this is a story of like Lawrence of Arabia. You know, when when it, like the famous story of Lawrence of Arabia. You know, they they start defeating the Ottomans and they start engaging in guerrilla warfare. Um, they eventually take Damascus and then it's gone. The British overpromised it. So they also promised Damascus to the French at the same time. They also they, to the Arabs. So the British during World War One, they were in this whole game of trying to please the Arab population along with the French population. And then later in the war, they tried to please the Zionists. Um, they all... They just overpromised land in the Middle East that they couldn't give to everyone. And at the same time, they also had their own imperial ambitions. So they didn't get their own state, the Arabs. Um, It was famously the French mandate in Syria. And that's why everything's so fucked up there. I mean, basically, they were like promising the one girl to go to prom with her. If she would just do this one thing, and then they promised the other girl, and now can't bring two girls to prom. It's not possible. It's against the rules. Yeah, basically. That's what happened. Unless you're a pimp, but uh, you know British ain't pimps, so that's basically what happened. So they <laughs> overpromised land. So I mean, the reason why they reached out to the Sharif of Mecca is because the Sharif of Mecca had a direct lineage up to Muhammad, so right. they had well, he had more street evidently. credit. He had more street credit than the the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire in the Muslim world. So that would a that would cause a ruckus in the Ottoman Empire, and then it would also uh, prevent rebellions within British territory. Right. But yeah, that's pretty much a story that led up to Sykes Pico. Um, that the Sykes Pico agreement was basically the the the, the deal that was secret uh, between the French and the British that the Arabs didn't know about. Uh, to divide the area up without them knowing. I mean, there's more layers to Sykes-Pico, like Russia and Italy and all these other countries were involved, but Sykes-Pico got spinned upside down or spun upside down because Russia went communist and they pulled out and um, they were supposed to get Constantinople and stuff like that. And so like a lot of, you know, the Sykes-Pico that you look at, like the, the line between the Mediterranean and the Persian, like that's not what ended up happening. Like, you know, these different countries ended up being formed and Israel and Palestine and, you know, that ended up being formed as well. But that's basically what it was. So, I mean, that was a 50 minute, 55 minute explanation of Sykes-Pico. How did I do? Is that good? I know a lot more about it now than I did before. I'll tell you that right now. And, you know, it's, it's not, it's not an easy topic, but, you know, I think, what I've learned so far is that it's not just cultural or linguistic differences. It's like a bunch of like external geopolitics that really screwed up the whole area. And I find it really interesting, especially in the beginning when you talk about those names. Like I can't get around the fact that nobody really knows why they called it Iraq. They're just like, yeah, that sounds good. Iraq. Maybe somebody knows somewhere, or maybe someone <laughs> has some source. If someone has a source of where the name Iraq comes from, I'd love to know me, that. I'd love to know that because I don't know. As what far as you, I know, it's just like something that's out of the blue. What would you have called it if it was up to you? 
I would have called it like Mesopotamia or something. Sumeria, I, I, I maybe. Called, Sumeria. I would have took. I would have called it something if, if I was like a British officer or somebody who was like making deals back in the fourteenth and fourteenth century in the early twentieth century on on the behalf of the empire. I would have called it something like Mesopotamia or something like that. I mean, I wouldn't have drawn those lines. First of all, <laughs> yeah. Even if I was drawing up lines. I would have drawn up different lines if I was an imperialist. For sure, I would draw. I would have drawn them up based on like geography. I wouldn't have touched know? Palestine. I would tell you that much. I would just would have been like, I you, French can have it. <laughs> I would have said, say you can have it. I would have if I was a British imperialist. The only thing I really would have been concerned about was getting the land. Um, like not, I wouldn't be that concerned about getting Jerusalem. I would get more. I'd be more concerned about getting like Gaza in places that would have a strategic importance around the Suez Canal, and then I would try to get the areas uh, down near Kuwait, um, and like in that in that little corner, and then I would try to get lands that were uh, close to the uh, where we found oil in uh, in Persia. That's and everything around try. like Oman and the Straits yeah, of Hormuz. I, I would, yeah, I would end up there. I would let – the British didn't really want Syria. That, that's the thing. The French were the ones who had this weird obsession with them because the French – I feel like the French had – like just reading more about that time period. Um, and, and obviously I'm reading like bias writers and, and you know I'm reading English – people who are writing in English – so <laughs> I don't learn get French just side. to do this, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm reading way more people like English historians and, and uh, American historians who tend to be a little bit more sympathetic to the British side than the French. Like it's very rare that you're going to find like any, <laughs> too many British and American historians that like paint the French as the good guys. But what you find is that the, the perception, the general perception that they give is that the French had like some type of dogmatic view on spreading like liberty and justice but they did it with like a cruel hand <laughs> but i guess you can say the exact same thing about like america you know <laughs> you democracy say that you, you you'll be you'll be able to come up with that exact narrative 100 years from now i mean now you can you come, come up, come with, up with it right now <laughs> but like especially 100 years ago when they start rat like when historians start looking at oh why did america just you know completely destroy iraq well, there um, was this ancient communication technology well, called Twitter. <laughs> America was obsessed with spreading democracy. It was ingrained in their blood. Like, I don't know. Maybe that's exactly how the historians will paint that story. Maybe. maybe we'll be like, the democratists, maybe. remember? I mean, there's going to be different historians who paint things in different ways, even how we do it right now. Right. I mean, there's still people who paint the Iraq war as a good thing. You know, there's still people who paint a lot of these uh, Middle Eastern conflicts as, as completely justified. Um, and there's going to be people who paint them like that a hundred years from now. You I want to buy, I wanna buy a, like a history textbook from like high school or some shit like that today. And like, yeah, that would be sections. super, we that would be that. a very interesting project yeah, um, to go through an old school history, like something because we're roughly we should the get same an old age. one and a new one so we can compare how they talk about it. Well, well those new textbooks are expensive as hell. Uh, I think I, um, I have a, my little sister still in high school. Maybe I'll just steal hers. Yeah, just steal her book. Where's your book? I think they do them digitally now. My brother took it for his podcast. <laughs> I used to get yelled at if I didn't have a cover on my textbook. You know what's disgusting? What? Uh, textbook, like middle school textbooks. Yeah, generally. Because I'm just thinking back right now. 
middle school textbooks, I remember like turning page because they would be passed down from class to class. Right. So you would get someone from the previous year's. Book. I used to love reading all of like you know you'd write your name in the inside cover, be like oh Danny Abdeljabbar. It would be great when you get somebody's book who is funny. Like, oh, I got this guy's book. This guy, this guy is hilarious. I right. can't wait to see what he wrote. Yeah, <laughs> and then you'll be like dicks everywhere. It's like, ah, <laughs> he got me. Yeah, <laughs> he put a dick in Woodrow Wilson's mouth. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> like it's, you know, that's sometimes you just find snot. <laughs> <laughs> the pages stick together. <laughs> you would just be like, "Oh, uh, someone left a pile of snot in their in their textbook. Uh, that's disgusting." Um, hopefully, I don't get blamed for this. <laughs> <laughs> right, my name's in this book right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be the snot guy. Well, it is what it. I mean, there's so much more to discuss on this. Um, over. I, I I know I've missed a lot of stuff that I should have talked about, but I just wanted to get a very broad like I wanted to give kind of a broad lesson on this. Not lesson, but I wanted to do a broad thing on this rather than like it was specific a bro aspect. It was a yeah, bro I wanted to do lesson. I wanted to do something more broad and just explain like the pieces in a in like in a more holistic form than rather than like, oh well, on this date, um, you know, uh you know the guys who were negotiating this deal were were uh, Mark Sykes on on behalf of the British, and um, um, uh, Guy Gray, um, Monsieur Pico, McMahon uh, was like another British officer who was who was doing a lot of the negotiation. He was the one who was communicating with with uh, Sharif Hussein, and there's like a lot of letter correspondence that that go deep into. Basically, how the British completely misled the Arabs to thinking that they would give them an Arab state, and it's like it's really funny looking through these letters because it starts out as very specific. So the British are like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, well, you're going to get this area," and then it just comes complete. Like the following letters are completely vague. There's like, "Yeah, um, You'll maybe get we'll some give you stuff," <laughs> and then eventually, the, uh, King uh, Hussein. The Sharif Hussein is like, what the fuck? Why are you being so vague now? You said you were gonna, we we're going to get our own state. So it's interesting. There's there's so much more into this topic, and there's you know I'm I'm sure there's so much more that hasn't been explored yet into it. But uh, the books that I really suggest, if you really really want to learn more about this, um, and we'll definitely be touching on this topic more because it's such an important part of like the overall thing that we talk about. We talk so much about the Middle East, so why not talk about um something that's just so pivotal in Middle Eastern history. Uh, a book that I'd recommend reading would be A Line in the Sand. Um, there, there's a lot of books that go more into like, I didn't really touch Israel and Palestine at all, um, or like the Zionist uh, movements, but honestly, that's just another subject for another day. Uh, we will get into that. But anything else before we conclude this? Uh, we're going on over an hour at this point. Nothing, man. Thanks, thanks for bringing me up to speed on sykes Peacock. You're welcome. Um, all right, everyone. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Make sure that you rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support the show. Um, rate and review. And um, I love you guys. Appreciate the time that you give us. And we look forward to giving you more episodes soon. Peace.
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. New episodes drop every weekday, so listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts.